1: It's that time of week again where my business partner, Sam Rust, takes over the show and interviews our guest. I hope you enjoy the show. This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Sam Rust, and I'm happy to welcome to the show, Greg Scully. Greg is a full-time real estate investor living in and focusing on Central and Eastern Tennessee. After 40 years in Alaska, came back to the States to the lower 48, hit the reset button to pursue entrepreneurship. And nearly 400 units later, his wife and partner are looking to scale their syndication business. Greg, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Sam. Happy to be here. Appreciate the opportunity. So I got to ask, Alaska to Tennessee, that's not a transition that a lot of people make. What were the factors that played into that? And
2: what led you and your wife to decide we need to hit this reset button? Tennessee specifically was an element of getting into this business. As we got started, investing from Alaska proved to be very difficult. Did multiple market tours into Tucson, into Spokane, into Dayton, Ohio, but had a lot of trouble actually getting started. I think in retrospect, due to lack of boots on the ground and just having that network through an education platform that I was involved with and still involved with, the first deal came about in Tennessee, which we decided to invest in. And then a a second one came right behind that with most of the same group. So just as a function of getting involved in multifamily, the deals were in Tennessee. And I had traveled back and forth from Alaska, sometimes you know, four or five weeks at a time for about a year transitioning. My wife got down once and we did a small tour drive around. We like, hey, this is nice down here. Let's go. So that's interesting. A lot of
1: folks, they might move locations for different reasons, but you had already decided that you were going to invest in real estate, that that was going to be the next chapter of your career. And you move strategically to be close to where your investments are. I know there's a lot of folks that talk about investing remotely. Why do you like to live near your real estate?
2: I really like the comfort level that comes with being in your market and being able to recognize opportunities very quickly. I'm not the type that has to go touch the property because we invested out a state with single family rentals without ever having seen them. So my mindset is not that I have to physically see the product, but being able to put properties into the context of a town, And the economy and what's going on just, I find extremely valuable. I think it's a differentiator in the market against competitors to have the deep knowledge of a market, helps you move faster, helps you make decisions faster. So yeah, I just, it was like when I had a W2 job, you know, after 20 years, I could basically do it in my sleep. There is a bit of a comfort level with that kind of acquired knowledge that you can do this you're not guessing, you're not making assumptions based on market reports alone or something. I appreciate
1: the market research that whether it's Marcus and Millichap or JLL or CBRE, they put out. And I think there's macro trends that we all should pay attention to as real estate investors. But as you and I were kind of chatting before we got this episode kicked off, real estate is ultimately hyper local. And I think a lot of the benefit of you being on the ground, like you were just alluding to, is being able to scout the exact location. Is this the block that you want to invest in? Is this the county that's going to allow you to execute on whatever strategy you've picked for this specific building? You know, all those things play a huge role. I know I'm pontificating a little bit here, but I think for those investors that see the siren song of high cap rates in another market that's five hundred, a thousand miles away from their place of residence, I think you really have to evaluate your investment strategy. Can it be done? Yes. Is it often done well? I would say no. In my experience, I've seen a lot of people that try to invest remotely. And unless you're going with a true turnkey and willing to accept significantly lower than returns, it just is not the most
2: optimal way to invest. I don't know. What are your thoughts broadly? Yeah, I agree. Just from the CoStar report thing, I've seen our own property show up in a CoStar report and like that average rent is wrong. So those things aren't perfect. They're good guidance, but having seen the property that I own show up in a co-star report with the wrong information gives you some pause looking forward as to, you still have to verify all of that information. Yeah. To invest at a state and do it well would take an incredible team. You would need the you other know, theoretically you're not going to be property managing that from afar. Or if you are, you might be better off doing it with a good third-party property manager. Ultimately, you may be better off by partnering as an LP in a syndication with an operator that is doing extremely well in that market already, rather than trying to go in there yourself and achieve the same kind of returns that hyper-local operators are able to get. Because I think it Mm -hmm. may be a stretch. Lots of tailwinds in a lot of markets that are covering up a lot of mistakes. So you can still do pretty well just by being in the right place at the right time with the right demographic metrics coming into your area. But to optimize, I think you got to be a little bit closer. So they say half the
1: struggle in winning the game is actually playing the game. And I think if you look at the last 10 years, maybe going back at least five years, if you had bought almost anywhere in the lower 48, you're probably doing okay in commercial real estate, multifamily real estate which is what we both specialize in. But in the next 10 years, I think that's going to be different. I don't think you can bank on the market bailing you out. And I think a lot of it's going to come down to asset management. I know you're pretty heavily involved in asset management of your portfolio, which is around 400 doors. How are you guys preparing for that shift in the market where, You know, as you just alluded to, we're not going to get bailed out of stupid purchase decisions just because the market is rising You know, at such a quick pace. That looks to be the case in 2021. I think it's going to slow down. I would imagine you do as well. How are you guys going to take advantage of the new environment where asset management is maybe more of a key than before? Vertical integration, bringing
2: management in-house. That's what we're starting to do. Some smaller properties here in Tennessee to cut our teeth. We have been using third-party management generally speaking, they've been okay. There's trade-offs. That is one definite benefit of third-party management. If you're not in the area, you have that ability to continue to live in Detroit and own in Atlanta. But with yield being compressed, you can save two or 3% right off the top line by vertically integrating and bringing management in. And You'll always be your top priority, which in any third-party management, that's not going to be the case. You are part of a larger ecosystem, and sometimes in that ecosystem, you just have to stay in your place in line until your number's called.
1: What's the average size of the buildings that you own now? 400 units, that's quite a bit. How's that distributed?
2: We don't own them all, so that's kind of what we've been part of over the years. The average size is... 40-something. We're in that 30 to our largest property is 68 units right now. And that's actually in Wichita. So Greg, what about that contradiction about (laughs) not owning in your micro market? (laughs) Read my mind. Yeah. We have partners that are in the area and fulfill that boots on the ground micro market knowledge to a comfort level that we're happy with. So if that part of it is satisfied for me then i'm happy to invest in other places i got myself off track so yeah 40 to 50 we're trying to scale out of that because uh, for the scale reasons uh seeing sometimes how much time it takes to manage a 49 unit to manage a 150 unit now i realize would not be three times the amount of time it might be 10 percent more time or something like that
1: definitely scale becomes an ever-increasing factor, especially as you're pursuing vertical integration. We found that the smaller, really sub-hundred units are just they're trickier to manage. And I think there's a really good niche there, and you can do very well. It's not to scare people away from those, but just once you get into the business and you build up that reservoir of knowledge and experience, you start wanting to apply it at a larger scale. Because as you alluded to, just not that much more effort. It can be done. I mean, if
2: you can get a 30 unit and then a 40 unit and then another 30 unit and they're within a 20 mile radius, you can achieve some scale doing it that way. The chances of it all happening in a single transaction are probably unlikely. So you can build into scale reasonably enough. So I wouldn't ignore that as a potential business plan. You mentioned
1: in your bio, Greg, that you guys have pursued scale through partnerships. You have this partnership in Wichita, you have other partnerships that you're working with. Some of those are traditional syndications. Some of those are joint ventures. Some of those are true partnerships. How do you pick which structure you're going to use and what's the specifically drilling down into syndication versus JV or joint venture? What are some of the advantages of each of those models?
2: The joint ventures we've done typically on smaller projects were the you know, the financial matrix might not support a syndication and an pref that would be easily communicated and basically sellable. So then we just revert back to a JV model and see how the returns look there. It gives you a lot more flexibility, I think, on what you can do with the business plan. If me and Sam and you know, my partner, Darren, and maybe one or two other people find a project. And if it was a syndication, we might want to raise the entire capital stack for rehab and CapEx. Whereas with the joint venture, we can look at that maybe a little bit more holistically and raise less on the front end. I'll agree that cash flow can be piled into the deal to fund some of the rehab and CapEx. Some of those decisions are a little bit easier to make as a small group. The syndication's uh, from from a KP or general partner perspective, they're more lucrative with less cash involved. Typically, general partners might be bringing 10% of the equity, but might have 30% of the upside. So, yep. And if it's a strong enough deal and you're able to deliver on an eight pref and your splits, everybody wins.
1: Yeah, I think that flexibility and really tying the model to how you're originating the capital makes a lot of sense. I know there's some folks that will raise money within a JV type structure. So it's kind of a hybrid of both syndication and a joint venture. But I like how you guys just look at what does this project require and come up with a, an individual plan for each property.
2: Yeah. And that's one advantage of the smaller unit counts. It doesn't always equate to lower purchase prices in our markets. It typically does. So with a purchase price of $3 million and you have to bring 25% down, if your network can support it, you know, you could probably find people that will be interested in that opportunity and have that more active participation as well by being in a joint venture, you tend to be in it a lot more than if you're a limited partner. That's the anticipation. At least. Do you have a
1: deal that you could kind of sketch for us, Greg, where the outcome was maybe unexpected, it could be surprise. To the upside could be a learning experience. But is there something over your career investing in real estate that you could share with our audience?
2: We had a local deal that we just sold that we were fully prepared to take a loss on and it ended up being a small profit. It was the first deal that brought us to Tennessee. A heavy lift. One, two, three things went sideways. It went 100% vacant. We had contractor problems. It was a huge pain in the rumpus i'm not sure how many 13 year olds you have listening but i think you know i wanted to go with that and that's actually part of the reason why we landed at johnson city because our main partner was here driving up from knoxville two or three days a week to try and keep this thing going so we purposely came down to help so how many units was this property 62
1: oh 62 so it was one of your larger
2: properties on paper it was like the great mom and pop value add plan. But once things went sideways, it was a bunch of holding costs. Somehow we went from a bridge loan to a bridge loan, which apparently has never been done before, anecdotally at least. So we were happy to escape with the tremendous amount of knowledge we got out of it and a small profit, but that was extremely stressful often. Yeah. What was a couple of the factors that caused it to go
1: sideways that were maybe unanticipated?
2: Uh, Going in, it was 85% occupied, which is not a terrible number. Well, as we began to execute the business plan of vacating one building at a time out of three, obviously the word got around that change was a common. And the tenant base was only interested in finding the next place that they could rent for $400. And we just had a mass exodus. We could have probably anticipated that. A little bit more and once that happens you're undercapitalized there's just no getting around it and then yeah we had a a contractor problem we could have done a better job vetting them maybe a google search that went four pages deep would have found the information that we needed that may not have had us sign on with this person to begin with and so that created a huge time delay Sure. Which holding costs just continue
1: to. Yeah. 0% occupancy debt service becomes a little bit more challenging.
2: Right. So in terms of capital allocation, that was supposed to go to rehab and CapEx, but it's going to hold it costs. And then you're like, okay, this is, this is not fun.
1: So how have you guys shifted your strategy now? Cause there's sometimes we're vacating entire buildings. Makes sense. There's enough work that needs to be done. You can you know scale the level of work and get people in and out more efficiently. But it also can have an impact on your occupancy. And if you're buying into workforce housing and it's a tenant base that just is looking for the bottom dollar on a per square foot or per unit basis, you can have that flight off property before, and while you're in the
2: middle of your turn. What do you guys do differently now? Generally, we don't look at projects like that anymore. But if there is some aspect of we expect some tenant flight or we'll create Vacancy, you just raise and raise for it. You know, if you have too much money, you can always give it back. But, you know, to have to have capital calls and stuff, this was a joint venture. So, fortunately, we were not the position that there were syndication involved. So, it was maybe just slightly easier to manage from a project management point of view. And then just making, you know, more doomsday type assumptions on where occupancy might go to and, and how long things are going to take because that's the other thing is half of it was through a pandemic guys- labor shortages and you know this and that. it's like oh my goodness so yeah just being very honest with ourselves about budgets time downside scenarios risk and is from a risk adjusted point of view is this even worth it
1: I think that's the biggest question: is the opportunity cost? We've had a couple of options here in the last six months or so to look at deals that would have been heavy value adds, not quite scrapes and rebuild, but nearly to that point where you're probably taking most of your units down to studs, and you, you know, the entire project needs, you know, call it thirty thousand a door an in investment, and the rates of return can look appealing when you're comparing it to a traditional value add. But you have to dig a little bit deeper and, and think of the opportunity cost. And what am I missing out on by taking on this Goliath that has so much risk to the downside, frankly, and how much time I'm going to have to sink into that project and could I execute on two or three you know, lighter value adds that while they might not individually equal the return, cumulatively, you're much, much further ahead. That's something that we're balancing and I would encourage our audience to balance as well just because you can get net the highest return, that's not the only piece of the puzzle you need to pay attention to.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, your debt is riskier, it's more expensive. It's usually short term. You know, we have had opportunities that were similar in, you know, the sniff test. It's like, oh, yeah, we've seen something like this before. And we're just like, no, thank you. People do it all the time. You know, there's a niche of people that can do that kind of stuff. We don't have all the pieces in our immediate network to take that on, so we're just not going to do it.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. As we're getting close to wrapping up here, Greg, a question that I've been asking a lot of guests recently is, where are we headed? What is your investment thesis moving forward? There's a lot of interesting data out there. Federal Reserve has been very interventionist, to put it lightly, into our monetary policy as a nation. Real estate generally right now is the sexy class to invest in. Everybody wants to invest in real estate. I've heard a lot of people and I'm sure you have as well. Now is the best time to invest in multifamily. You and I, we both are investing in multifamily, but what do you see in the next 18 months? What keeps you up at night? What gets you excited? Everything in between.
2: I mean, I read the broad level type stuff because I want to stay informed. I don't think a lot of it Really affects our day to day running of our business. You do have exposure to the credit markets. And, you know, we saw that in 2008, where it was largely centered around Phoenix and Miami and and a few other places that took the brunt of what was going on. Back in Alaska, oil prices were tremendously high and we were fine. So, I mean, that's just an example of how market specific things are. We all had to deal with changes to. The credit side of it, people were less likely to loan, you know, things like that. You can't escape that from a national level. But ultimately, we're just extremely focused on just running our business and seeing what's going on in our market, and the demographics. You know, we're in Tennessee through COVID. We've had some nice demographic tailwinds that we didn't have in our pro forma. And we're not geniuses. We're not going to say we forecasted that because we did it. So it's just a matter of operating where you are to the best of your ability and looking at your finance or, you know, your situation very holistically and keeping your options open. So I generally think multifamily is going to do pretty well, especially in the markets that we're focused on. So we're more f- trying to find that balance between giving the market the credit it deserves for the upside that we think is coming and still being defensible and conservative enough in our underwriting to account for any potential risk. Number one thing that's contributed
1: to your success, Greg, you guys have grown a business from nothing, moved down to Tennessee, you've overcome hurdles, you know, a 62 unit deal that sounds like it would have sunk a lot of other folks. You guys demonstrated real resilience to pull that through. And
2: you've got a pretty
1: significant portfolio now. What do you attribute that to?
2: Just a lot of persistence. I think that's just sticking with it. There's been multiple, and it wasn't even that 62 unit. We were in another project that got off to not a rocky start. It, it's a fine project that is doing very well. But in the contract phase of it, there was a few difficult moments where you, you're you like, we're stuck. There's no way this is going to end well. And you just keep plugging along and you find a solution. So we all have to recognize the challenge, but not get consumed by it and get to the point where you're defeated. Just keep plugging away keep persevering. This is a slow game. A lot of what we see on social media seems like there's a lot of overnight stars. You know, I remember meeting Whitney at a conference three or four years ago, and he was just starting this thing called a podcast. And now four or five years later, he's an overnight success. So. You just got to stick with it. It's a lot like an iceberg. Everybody sees the top 10%
1: and they think it looks beautiful and amazing and oh, wow, but they don't realize everything that's underneath the surface, everything that went into creating these businesses. Yeah. We know what we're doing every day. There's no shortage of things to be done. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Well, Greg, if folks in our audience want to reach out, connect with you, learn more about what you're doing in Eastern and Central Tennessee,
2: how can they get a hold of you? The best place is uh, realwealth.solutions, which is our website for all things Greg Scully and Darren Light and Kim Scully. That's basically what Real Wealth Solutions is. We host a podcast as well. We're very active in northeast tennessee we have a meetup which is in person and online so you can kind of find everything about us at realwealth.solutions including contact forms and we're happy to get on the phone and chat about tennessee and see if maybe there's something we can do together fantastic well thanks
1: for joining us greg thank you to our audience for joining us on another episode of the real estate syndication show i'm your host sam rust signing off
0: thank you for listening to the real estate syndication show